Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you haven't met me yet formally, my name is Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. Also, if you're a first-time visitor this morning, welcome. We're thankful that God has brought you here to worship with us. Having said that, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. We'll be looking at verse 12 this morning. That might come as a shock to some of you if you haven't been here recently. I thought we were going through the book of Genesis. We have been, but we're going to be taking a brief break from that glorious book. And we're going to be looking at the I Am sayings of Jesus. The intent is for this to be an Advent series. And you say, wait a minute, doesn't Advent start next week? Yes, it does. But you get one extra sermon thrown in there as well. And our intent with this series is for you to really see it as a gift to be unwrapped as we celebrate and reflect during the Advent season. Because what are we celebrating? What are we remembering? We're remembering the first Advent of Jesus. And Jesus, the Son of God, coming in the flesh for us and our salvation, is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And He has been given to us by the Father. And the I Am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John answer the question, Who is Jesus? What has he come to do in order to reconcile us to God as our mediator, the one mediator between God and man? And so it's our hope and prayer that you savor each one of these sermons and see them as a gift to be unwrapped, to help you enjoy this season and reflect on God's abundant grace to us. Having said that, let's look at John chapter 8 and verse 12. I'm going to read this verse in its entirety. Before I do, I remind you as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so may we attend to it as such. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And so we ask, Lord, that you would teach us now from your word, for we rejoice in the reality that it is our heritage forever and the joy of our hearts. So by your spirit, we ask that you would incline our hearts to perform your law forever, even to the end. Uphold us, we pray, according to your promise that we may live and let us not be put to shame in you who are our hope. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for His sake. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're anything like me, but I think I have the reputation, and I readily own it and acknowledge it, for being a person that when I show up somewhere, I'm looking to turn lights on. I'm looking for the switches. I'm looking for the knobs. I want the lights on in any room that I'm in. I want to be able to take in my surroundings, to see what's around me. And so when I show up at the office in the mornings, even if the overhead lights are already on, I'm clicking on lamps, 
totally unnecessary in some ways, but I want the ambiance. When I show up at home, if I feel like it's too dark, I'm flicking on lights all over the place. And if I'm at a hotel, you know this experience, right? Walk into your hotel room, and if it's in the middle of the day, I'm looking for that shade so I can swing it open and see and get settled what's going on in this room. If it's nighttime, I'm looking for those light switches. I'm going to turn them on. And I think most of us are that way, aren't we? You don't want to be stumbling around in the dark. The only time you really want to be in the dark, likely something is wrong. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're depressed, and so you just would love it if you could disappear. And so you're doing your best to turn the lights off and get away from people and hide in the darkness. Or maybe you get terrible migraine headaches like my wife to the point where, at times, the light hurts your eyes and makes your headache worse, and so you want to sit in the darkness. But I think that's an exception to the rule. In general, we want to be in the light, don't we? And I think that reality is even touched on in the fact that when God is creating the universe for us to inhabit, we saw this already in Genesis chapter 1. What's the first thing he creates? What does he say? Let there be light. And he creates this division between the light and the darkness so that we can inhabit the earth. But you see, I think there's an even deeper reality there. And the deeper reality is, even in our everyday speech, we talk about the truth and goodness as being light. And we speak of ignorance and lies and evil as being darkness, don't we? Think about it. If someone is finally seeing a truth that maybe you've tried to relate to them, and all of a sudden they realize it, how do we speak about that? We say, hey, they finally see the light. They've been enlightened. Or if somebody asks you about something that you know nothing about, what's your response to them? Typically, won't you say, oh, I'm in the dark on that one. I don't know what's going on. And you see, the reality is that this is hitting on the fact that God created us as his image bearers to be in the light, to know the truth about him as our God ourselves as his creatures, and the universe as his creation. He didn't create us to be in the dark, to not know. He created us to live in the light and walk in the light with him. And yet, what's the great tragedy of the fall? We'll spend more time in this when we get to this in Genesis. But the great tragedy of the fall is that along with Adam, all mankind is plunged into darkness, aren't we? We're kicked out of the presence of God's light and we're plunged into darkness and lies and sin and death and sickness. And that's the state of fallen man still and we still live in a world of darkness. And you see, it's against this backdrop that Jesus shows up and says what? I am the light of the world. And as people who live in a dark world, it is of the utmost importance that we understand what Jesus is talking about here. And so in order for us to understand the import of Jesus being the light of the world, I want us to look at three important truths from John chapter 8, verse 12. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus is light. 
which should make perfect sense to us, because God is light. And since Jesus is God, he is light as well. Second of all, and then we'll get to the bad news here in the second point, is that the world is darkness. We'll look at that in particular, how we're plunged into darkness now as a result of the fall. Not just externally, but there is a heart of darkness within each and every one of us. And then thirdly, lastly, we'll look at the good news. That in Jesus, when we're given the gift of faith, we become light. Because the light dwells within us and we have a new relationship with him. So we'll see Jesus is the light, the world is darkness, and that in Jesus... We become light ourselves. And here's my hope and prayer. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever here this morning, I pray that you would see this reality. See the reality of Jesus as the light of the world and that it would enlighten your darkened heart either to the end of salvation if you're an unbeliever or to your further sanctification and deepened relationship with the Lord if you're a believer here this morning. May the Lord be pleased to use his word to that end. Let's look first then at how Jesus is light. Look at verse 12 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we're kind of parachuting into this passage, not kind of, we are. And any time you do that, you're in the danger of missing the context in which a statement is made. And there is a very specific historical context in which Jesus is saying this that's very helpful for us to understand. And we're given that context earlier in John chapter 7. And so if you'll turn back just one page and look at John chapter 7 and verse 2 with me, we see there that John relays to us, now the feast, the Jews' feast of booths, was at hand. And so we're going to see later in chapter 7, or we're not going to see, I'm just going to summarize it for you, that Jesus ends up going to this feast of booths. He was required to by the law. The Lord commanded the Israelites back in Leviticus chapter 23 to observe this festival of booths or tabernacles or tents. It was one of the three feasts that they were to participate in, the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And so Jesus is there. And it's important for us to understand why they were to celebrate, as the people of Israel, this festival. They were to celebrate this festival because it was to remind them of God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness after he brought them out of slavery to Egypt. And on their way to the Promised Land, as they're wandering in the wilderness, God provides for them. He protects them. He cares for them as they're in this very vulnerable state because they have no city. They have no home. They have no ultimate protection but God himself. And this is symbolized for them in what they were required to do during this festival. It was a week-long festival. And what families would do is they would build these makeshift tents on the roofs of their houses. They would build these little makeshift tents and the whole family would live up there together for an entire week. Again, you understand the symbolism and the imagery. They're living in these little tents just as Israel did, as they're wandering through the wilderness, as God is taking them to the promised land. And so it's a reminder of their dependence upon God. 
to provide for them. To further highlight the reality of this dependence and God's provision in the wilderness, there were two other aspects of the ceremony that they were to carry out. And I'll cover the first one very briefly, and the second one we'll spend a little bit more time. The first aspect of the feast was the rabbi, the priest, every single day of the feast would go to the pool of Siloam with a jar and fill it with water. The people would follow him there, and the people would follow him back, and then he would pour that at the base of the altar. And if you know your Old Testament history, you probably know what this is meant to symbolize or represent. It's to symbolize the fact that as they're in the wilderness, if you know anything about this wilderness, what is it? It's a desert. It would get to degrees of 120 to 140 degrees during the day. And what makes a desert a desert? There's no water. And so they would have dehydrated out there. And so what does the Lord do? He provides water from the rock. He provides for their physical needs so that they won't die as he's leading them to the place of his presence, the place where they'll worship him. But they will live and they will make it. And what's fascinating and brilliant on Jesus' part is on the last day of the feast, we know it's the last day of the feast because of John chapter 7, verse 37, John tells us there, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus stands up and says, listen, I'm the one that gave you water in the wilderness. I'm the one that provided for you, and I am the one who has now come and will give the promised Holy Spirit so that whereas you were thirsty again after you drank that water in the wilderness, you will spiritually drink of me and my spirit, and you will never thirst again. So that's the first thing. Jesus is saying, look, all of these shadows under the old covenant are pointing to the reality of me, and I am here. But the second aspect of this feast, which is more pertinent to what Jesus is saying here in chapter 8 and verse 12, is that they would take these giant lamps, which essentially in the ancient world were just giant jars that could hold gallons upon gallons of oil. And there were four of them. And they would set these massive jars, these lamps up, In the court of women. Don't ask me why the court of women, but that's where they set them up. And at night, they would light each one of these. And historical sources tell us it was just brilliant. The light shone so brightly that it didn't just light up the temple area. It set the whole city ablaze with light. And they would dance, and they would rejoice. And what was this meant to symbolize? This was meant to symbolize, again, if you know your Old Testament, you know where I'm going with this already. How did God guide them? How did God give them light in the wilderness when there were millions of Israelites there? They didn't have a light source. So God is in their presence as their light source. He's what? The pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. He's providing them covering and protection. Remember, they're under the, in the elements. They don't have any shade unless the Lord is their shade, protecting them from sunstroke and the elements. And so during the day, he's protecting them and leading them and guiding them. And then at night, he's their light source so that they can see. And so they're celebrating this and remembering the Lord's provision symbolically. And here's the thing. The last day of the festival, what they would do the last night is they would light 
three of the four lamps, and they would leave one unlit. And do you know why they would leave one unlit? They would leave one unlit to remind one another, the fullness of salvation has not yet come. We are still waiting for the light to the nations that God promised through the mouth of Isaiah. We're still waiting for the son of righteousness that Malachi prophesied. We're waiting for the Messiah, the promised one, to come. And again, do you see Jesus' brilliant timing? Here he is, the last night of the festival. This lamp is left unlit. They're thinking about that. And he stands up, and what does he say? I am that promised light of the world to the nations. And so do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying all those Old Testament ceremonies, the signs, the symbols that God gave you, the bread, the water, the tabernacle, the glory cloud, those all pointed to me. I was there providing for you through all of those, and now I have come to fulfill the promise that God would dwell among you in the flesh. I am the light of the world. Do you see the the import? Do you see the weightiness of what Jesus is saying here? And how all of the old covenant points to him and the incredible reality that he is. And his choice of words in saying that he is light shouldn't surprise us either. Because again and again, all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as dwelling in light. We don't have time to look at all the references here. But he dwells in light. Light proceeds forth from him. And he is light. A great example of this can be found in Psalm 27 and verse 1. Where what does the psalmist say? He says, the Lord is my light. We can fast forward to the New Testament. And we look at another writing of John, his first letter. And what does he say in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5? He says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so this shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is saying, I am light, because he's God, and since God is light, Jesus is light as well. Now, we need to clarify something here, because what I don't want you to think when you hear me say, God is light that when you walk into a dark room and flick the lights on, or as we have lights beaming down on us right now, that physical light is not God. Right? Okay? I hope we know that. God is not physical. God is not created. And so let's avoid the error that some have made throughout church history in even saying that Jesus is the physical sun in the solar system. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We know that from a place like 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16. Because speaking of God, listen to what Paul says. He says of God that he dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. In other words, God is unapproachable light, but you can't see him because he's not physical, created light. God is not created. He creates everything that is. God does not receive his existence from something or someone else. He is existence. He is life. And so we're not talking about something created or something 
that is seen. The scriptures are abundantly clear about that. So then we have to ask the question, what kind of light is God? What kind of light is he if he's not physical light? And I love the answer that Herman Bovink gives in his Reformed Dogmatics. The Dutch theologian says, what light is in the natural world, the source of knowledge, purity, and joy, God is in the world of the Spirit. In other words, sort of like when you're going to throw a surprise party for someone and you turn the lights off, right? And then when they walk in and you turn the lights on, surprise! And then there's joy and there's knowledge and there's excitement and then you leave the lights on and you celebrate together. Light is that source that allows us to know things and enjoy them. What we're being told here is that God is spiritual light. He gives knowledge. He gives understanding of himself and his creation. He reveals his glory, his character, so that we can rightly know him. And so this is how we're to think about God as light. He is spiritual light, revealing his glory to us. Now, what's incredible is if we go back to John's prologue, which anytime we want to understand something that's said about Jesus, it helps to stick at least initially within the same book to see what the author says about these things. And you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 1 and verse 9 in the prologue, speaking of Jesus, we learn something incredible about Jesus as the light. And here's what John says in John 1 verse 9. The true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Do you see what's being said about Jesus here? Jesus is saying that to the extent that any human being, any image bearer of God, rightly understands reality, Jesus is the one who has revealed that to them. So let me make this a little bit more concrete. If you know anything about science, and you rightly know something about science, or math, or literature, or poetry, or music, or have a right understanding of your spouse, or your children, or your friends, or whatever, to the extent that you rightly understand reality, that has been given to you, that has been taught to you by Jesus, which is absolutely incredible. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. To the extent that you rightly know something, that has been taught to you by Jesus as the true light which gives light to everyone. This reality absolutely blows me away because I have a a four-year-old son, my firstborn, and he is right on the cusp of learning how to read. Now, it's thrilling. You know this. You parents, whether you're currently a parent or now your kids are raised, you know the thrill of watching your children develop in this way. He's like identifying his letters. He's been doing that for a while, but now he's trying to sound them out. And he can see that his mom and I and other people have access to knowledge because we can read that he doesn't. And it motivates him. Hey, I'm kind of in the dark here and I want to be in the light. And what's incredible is not just seeing that as a father, watching him develop, but understanding who's the one that's ultimately teaching that to him. It's Jesus as the light who enlightens everyone. Now, even as we acknowledge that, We need to distinguish that Jesus is not talking about himself being the light in a common grace way to all human beings as he is in John 1. He's not speaking about it the same way here in John chapter 8 and verse 12. 
He's not talking about enlightening all mankind. He's talking about how he is the light of the world to Jews and Gentiles alike in a saving way. In a saving way. He comes and he opens our darkened eyes. The spiritual blindness that we have. And he removes the scales as it were. Even as he did for Saul, the Apostle Paul. So that we can behold his glory and rejoice in him. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 8 in verse 12. And we're going to talk about that quite at length in points 2 and 3. So let's move along then and look secondly, not just at how Jesus is light, but now let's move to the bad news, how the world is darkness. That's our second point. Look at verse 12 to see that with me again. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. Now, you may wonder, where did you get this idea that the world is darkness? Well, understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, And what Jesus is saying, by the way, is testified all throughout Scripture. Ever since the fall of man, all human beings, all of you here this morning, fall into one of two categories, myself included. We are either in the light because we are in Christ, Because he has graciously opened our eyes to behold his light. And now we follow him. We believe him. And we rightly know him. Or, that's one category. The other category is we are still fallen in Adam. And we're in the darkness. We don't follow the light. We hate the light. We do what's right in our own eyes. We try to be a light unto our own path. We try to be a law unto ourselves. And so we're either in the darkness in Adam or we're in the light in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're in one of those two categories. And you see, when we're in the dark, in our fallen state, we're like Nicodemus. You remember this story? Again, sticking in the book of John. He he comes to Jesus. And I don't think it's coincidental. When does he come to Jesus? Do you remember what time of day it is? a little bit of a trick question. It's not actually during the day. When does he come to Jesus? He comes to him in the night. He comes to him when he's enshrouded in darkness so that no one can see him, so that no one knows he's going to Jesus to ask him these questions that he's going to ask. But here's the thing. What's not only incredible to realize is not that Nicodemus has darkness around him, outside of him, But as soon as he starts talking with Jesus, what becomes abundantly clear? What does Jesus bring to light? He brings to light that there's inner darkness in Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a heart of darkness. He can't see. He can't see the light of the world, even as he's sitting and shining right in front of him. Because what does Jesus say? He says, the only way to go into the kingdom of heaven is if you're born again. What does Nicodemus say? (laughs) Chuckling to himself probably. Is a man going to be born again in his mother's womb? Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And what becomes abundantly clear is, Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? Is that there is darkness. There is not light. There is not spiritual sight. There's not a spiritual apprehension of who Jesus is and what kingdom he has ushered in. He's completely in the dark. 
And brothers and sisters, that's what we've been saved from. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, that's currently where you are. Listen to Jesus' assessment of the world. Again, in John chapter 3, verse 19. Here's what he says in the context of his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. The Son of God has taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, Jesus comes and, as it were, he turns the light on. He hits the switch. He's turning the knobs. The light of the world is here. The light that you've been waiting for. And what's the great tragedy? Man in his fallen state says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Turn the lights off. Well, you can't turn Jesus off. He is the light of the world. So what do you do? You flee. You run. Looking for the dark places to hide from his light that exposes you. And reveals who you really are. A fallen human being with a heart of darkness. That's the tragedy. And Jesus is saying, fallen man, this is his state. Completely given over to darkness. And I think this is really helpful. Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says that in our fallen state, there are three types of darkness that we experience. We'll quickly go through these. Just to highlight the great tragedy, this is not what man was created for. But the first darkness that he points out is the darkness of ignorance. Again, I already mentioned that we were created to know the truth about God and ourselves and creation. And yet after the fall, when man is taken over by darkness and gives himself to darkness, now he's characterized not by knowledge, not by truth, not by a right understanding, but by ignorance. We don't know things the way we were created to know them because our reason is darkened. This is the clear testimony of Scripture that our whole person, body and soul, is now marred by the fall. There's no faculty of our body or soul that is not touched and ravaged by sin. And so part of that is our reason. It's darkened. And so we're in the darkness of ignorance. Second of all, he says we experience the darkness of sin. Our affections, our heart, our will is not directed towards God as it ought to be, but instead we become turned in on ourselves and we worship the creature, ourselves, or the creation, anything but God. And so we don't obey his law. We do what we want to do. We're slaves to our passions. And you may be sitting there as an unbeliever this morning saying, I'm not a slave to my sin. I can control them a little bit. I don't deny that maybe you can manage them a bit so other people don't see all of your vices. But make no mistake about it, friend, you are a slave to your sin. And if you're a believer here this morning, that's what the Lord has delivered you from. We were at one time, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. Because we were a part of the slavery of the flesh and the world and the devil. These first two darknesses we experience in this life, ignorance and sin, Aquinas points out that the third darkness, the worst darkness, is reserved 
for after death, after we've died, our souls, if we die outside of Christ, to hell, and we experience the darkness of eternal damnation. He cites Matthew chapter 25 and verse 30 saying, And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The greatest tragedy is not the darkness of ignorance or even the darkness of sin. It's the eternal damnation that we deserve as fallen humanity for our sin and rebellion against God. And I know what you might be thinking, especially if you're an unbeliever here this morning. Are you serious? That little lie that I told is deserving of eternal damnation? Doesn't that seem a little extreme? This is part of your ignorance. You don't understand. It's not about the smallness of your sin. It's not about the smallness of your lie in and of itself. It's who that infraction, that crime is against. That lie that you told is against the one who is infinitely and eternally truth itself. And he can't wink at lies. He can't say, oh, that's okay. It's not a big deal. No, he is the truth and he is just and he is righteous and he is holy, holy, holy. And so the only fit punishment for that sin, as small as it may be in your eyes, is eternal damnation. Suffering under the wrath of God for all eternity. I don't take any pleasure in telling you that if you're an unbeliever here this morning. But this is in fact your state. And the Bible says if I love you and I'm faithful to the one whom I love, I will clearly make that known to you. This is your state. Ignorance. Slavery to sin. And the eternal wrath of God hanging over your head like a sword until you die. Now, there's the bad news. And you see, this is why Jesus had to come. This is why Jesus had to come into our darkness. To save us from the kingdom of darkness. And to bring us into his glorious light. And so how does he do that? The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, takes on a human nature, body and soul, to be the perfect light bearer that we were created to be as humans, as image bearers of God, that we failed to be because of our sin. He comes and he perfectly glorifies and reflects in his human body and soul the glory of God. He never once sins. And you see that perfect track record of being a perfect light bearer, is now given to us. It's given to you and to me, believers, so that we now stand before God as those who have perfectly reflected His glory. That's how He treats us. And then what does Jesus do on the cross? Do you remember what is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27 and verse 46? Right before Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gives up his spirit. Do you remember what happens? Jesus is crucified in the middle of the day. The sun is out. It's shining. And then what happens? Darkness falls over the land. The sun is blotted out. What's that representing to us? What's that representing? It's telling us that what's happening is Jesus has not just taken on the likeness of sinful flesh to enter into the darkness of our world. 
But then he took that eternal damnation, that darkness that we deserve for our sin upon himself, and he experienced it in full on the cross. So that he can say about the wrath-bearing that you and I deserve, it's finished. There's none left for you. Because I've paid for that in full. I took your darkness upon myself. Didn't just enter into it, I took it upon myself. And so this is your only hope, unbeliever. I hope you hear me loud and clear. Listen, you are not just amidst darkness, you are darkness. There's no light you can drum up within yourself to convert yourself from darkness to light. You are incapable of doing that. So don't look to yourself. Don't look internally to your own resources. And don't look externally to try to manipulate your circumstances to make so much light around you that then that will change you to be light. It's a fool's errand. Only Jesus, the light of the world, who has come into our darkness and taken the darkness upon himself, can make you light. And if you're a believer here this morning, you should rejoice that that reality is yours. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, who is alone the light of the world. Now, we could just end things right there and it'd be like, wow, that's glorious. But here's the thing, the the glorious good news doesn't stop there. Because we've got a third point here that we've got to touch on Not only is Jesus the light, and not only is the world darkness, but thirdly, for those who are in Jesus, we become light. We are now light in him. That's the third point. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12 with me again. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, what's so powerful, and there's so many things we're having to skip over for the sake of time, but it's absolutely glorious that in the Gospel of John, after Jesus makes this claim to be the light of the world, the Jews, by the way, know exactly what he's saying. Because the rest of chapter 8 is taken up with this dialogue, this argument, back and forth between Jesus and the Jews. But what happens at the very end of the chapter, and starting into verse 9, is now Jesus gives us a sign an evidence of the reality that he is the light of the world. And what does he do? Right out the gate in chapter 9, he heals a man who is born blind. A man who not once had sight and then lost it, but a man from the day of his birth never had sight. Jesus comes and he heals this man and gives him physical sight so that for the first time in his life he can now see. And do you know why John put that there? What he's saying is, What Jesus is saying in doing this and what John is saying in recording this, just as I am the one who can give physical sight to those who are physically blind, I alone can give spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. And that's exactly what Jesus does when he comes to us. I love how Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. You don't have to turn there. But let me read this for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Natural man is blinded. He's incapable of being able to behold the glory of the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul goes on to say, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now listen to this. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember when we were in Genesis and God said, let there be light and he creates light and it pierces the darkness. That's how he initiates creation. God initiates the recreation of man by saying, let there be light in this darkened heart. And the Spirit gives us life and we're regenerated and we're a new creation. And for the first time, though we were once spiritually blind, we can now see the glory of God The glory of his creation as it really is. Because he's opened our darkened eyes and we behold the glory of Jesus who is the light of the world. Now here's the thing. It doesn't just stop there. Because what does Jesus say about us as his people? He doesn't just say, I am the light of the world in John 8 verse 12. But then in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14, what does Jesus say about you and me who are believers here this morning? You are the light of the world. Now, let's be careful. We're not the light of the world in the exact same way that Jesus is, right? Because I'm not the only begotten of the Father. I'm not divine. I don't enlighten all men by my incredible knowledge. Come on now, let's laugh a little bit at this, right? We have to make sure that we're not trying to say something about ourselves that isn't true. But what is Jesus saying then? He's saying, listen, you now reflect my light. The glory of my light to those who are around you. That's what you were created to do. Not to be a light source unto yourself, but to reflect the glory and light of me to those who are around you and how you live and how you treat other people and how you worship me. And you're going to be conformed to that image more and more as you spend time in the light of my presence. I love how Paul speaks about this because you'll often see Paul use this language of light and the fact that we are light even as he gives us moral imperatives as he says here's how you're supposed to live this is the law that's supposed to govern your life he doesn't just hit us with law he also hits us with the gospel truth that we are to live that way in light of who we now are in Jesus such an example is in first Thessalonians chapter 5 Verse 5, Paul says, For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying, don't live the way you used to because that's not who you are anymore. You're not darkness. You're now light in Jesus. You're not of the night. You're not of the darkness You're now of the day, you're of the light in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the light of the world. So live that way. Now, if you're a believer here this morning, probably the question you're going to ask is, well, I hate to break this to you, Jason, but there's still darkness in me. Well, I don't hate to break it to you. I mean, I'm not proud of it, but there's still darkness in me as well. Still remaining the remnants of the flesh clinging to me. So that I say like Paul in Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. But here's the promise that you've got to hear, Christian. 
As you at times grow weary in your fight against sin, the darkness that still remains in you, and you wonder, man, is this darkness going to overtake me? Hear the promise of Jesus. The darkness will not overtake you. The light will prevail. What does Jesus say? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We will progressively, from one degree of glory to the next, brothers and sisters, have the remaining darkness be eradicated day by day as we bask in the the light of the presence of God together like this. And as we open up His Word and fellowship with Him throughout the week. That's the promise that He's making here. Until that great day when we shine perfectly like the light we were created to be. And Jesus says that day will come. You know when that day will come? When He comes back again. Because what does He say in Matthew 13 verse 43? He says, when I come again, Then the righteous, brothers and sisters, that's you and me, declared righteous in Jesus and progressively made more and more righteous by his spirit, by his grace, by his word. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Where's the culmination of this sanctification that you're undergoing? You are now light. Yes, there's still darkness like little fractures in a diamond that don't reflect the light the way that they ought to, but one day you perfectly will because we will be perfected in the light of his presence and have perfect fellowship with God and with one another. That's where we're headed. In your fight against the remaining darkness, don't lose sight of that. Jesus has promised this is what's going to happen. So continue to fight. Continue to repent. Continue to look to him in faith. And oh, I pray that we're motivated as those who are now the light of the world ourselves, reflecting Jesus who is the light of the world, that we would be so driven to tell others about who Jesus is. Because the light of the nations that has been promised, the son of righteousness, has come. And he's not just for us. He's for those peoples Those nations, those tribes, those languages who in the history of the world have never heard the good news. And it's our privilege to make him known here and abroad to the farthest ends of the earth because the light of the world has come and brought us out of darkness that we might make him known far and near. And you know what motivates that? It's a constant reflection on how we've been brought out of darkness into the marvelous light. And so I pray the song in our hearts as we reflect on this truth would be that old hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Only the light of the world, Jesus, can bring us out of such darkness into light. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the light of your word shining upon us and being 
illumined by your Spirit. We pray for those who are unbelievers here this morning, Lord, that you do the work that only you can do, bringing light where there is darkness. Save those who are lost, Lord, we pray. And for those of us whom you have saved, may we be humbled by what we've been saved from by your grace. And may we be empowered and driven by gratitude and thankfulness to make the good news of Jesus as the light of the world known to all around us and to send missionaries to the ends of the earth and support them and pray for them so that the light would shine in those dark places. Do this in our midst, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.